From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. Mixed martial arts is one of the fastest growing sports in North America, and the Ultimate Fighting Championship is the biggest organization in the game. In 2016, the company was sold for a reported $4 billion. But the UFC didn't even exist 25 years ago. Most fans assume it all started with Dana White, the promoter and the face of the sport. But the story begins way before Dana was involved. This week, we go back to November 12, 1993, when the UFC was born on a cold night in Denver, Colorado. Reporter Chris Barube tells the story in No Rules, The Birth of the UFC. This is the moment UFC fans have been waiting for. Five, five-minute round. Here we go! One person walks out of that octagon. The largest deal in the history of sports will officially be revealed to the world this morning by the UFC. Good for the guys that, that sold it for uh, 400, what is it, 2 billion? Yeah, 4 billion. 4 billion. 4, 4 billion dollar deal. Can he finish it right here, right now? It's really clear who, who really took command of the octagon. The Ultimate Fighting Championship. A sport born in our lifetime in the United States. When you think about it, pretty incredible. So how did it happen? It starts with this guy, Art Davey, a local car dealer in the 80s in San Diego. You know, I was 27 years old. I owned a car dealership in San Diego. You know, I I talked my way into getting lines of credit from people who probably thought, who the hell is this kid? Why are we giving him this money? You know, my job always was to come up with something and say, you know something? This is going to be big. But Art wasn't just selling cars. He was also selling himself. I did all my own stunts, jumped off a 10-story building, got shot with a 357 Magnum, got set on fire for my commercials. Ah! Hurdling 25 feet through the air is a very big risk. You would not do it. Why take the same risk when you buy a new car? So I was a guy that knew how to get shit done. The car business was good, but Art had other plans. He says there's one scheme he's been thinking about for a long time. It started one day when he's a kid. He's on the beach, and his friend says, Hey, Art, you're into boxing. This other guy, he's a wrestler. And they start talking. Who would win a fight, you or me? So before you know it, we're sparring, and I end up on the sand. Man, it was like 22 seconds. It was over. I never forgot that. So this idea starts running through his head. Say you put all the toughest guys in one room and you get them to fight each other. Who would win? Is it a boxer? Is it a sumo wrestler? Is it a judo player? Who is it? Is it somebody you never heard of? Is it some kid from, from Brooklyn, New York? Is it a farmer from Boise, Idaho? Who, that's what I wanted to find out. Art becomes obsessed. He thinks this is more than just an idea. This taps into something big and ancient and primal. You're always looking for the one. The great white shark, the apex predator. Fast forward a couple of years. Now, Art's working at an advertising agency. And he actually starts pitching this idea to clients. They all turn him down. But Art doesn't care. He starts looking deeper into this idea. He reads every book at the library about the history of fighting. And he finds, actually, there was something kind of like this in ancient Greece. It was called pancration. It's like a boxing-wrestling hybrid. I had history behind me. For 1,041 years, it had been in the Olympics. This was no fluke. I was simply bringing back the glory of the ancient world. How could I go wrong? Come on. 
Then he comes across an article from an old issue of Playboy. It's about a family jujitsu school in L.A., the Gracie Academy, run by this guy, Horian Gracie. I came from Brazil to demonstrate the effectiveness of the martial arts that my father has perfected. Art sees this and he thinks, these guys are too good to be true. Horion Gracie and his family, they're fighting royalty, just not in America. My father was the first sports icon in the history of Brazil. My dad, the number one ever, very famous. Horion's dad, Helio Gracie, was only 140 pounds, five foot nine, but he used jujitsu to fight much taller guys in front of thousands of screaming fans. On top of all of this, Helio Gracie fathered nine kids. But despite his legendary fighting and his impressive fathering, nobody in America knew anything about the Gracies. Horion is athletic, like his dad. He's slim, in ridiculously good shape. For a while, he had a Tom Selleck mustache. So Horion's in L.A., and he sets up the first Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Academy in America. So I took a car garage in Hermosa Beach, and I rented a house with a friend of mine. And nothing. I took everything out, painted the walls white, and put the green mats on the floor. In this garage, Horian starts teaching the patented Gracie fighting style. It goes something like this. First, you close the distance with your opponent, and you get them on the ground. Then, you finish them with a chokehold. I grab a hold of the guys, put them on the ground lovingly, squeeze their necks carefully, you know, slowly, and they twist their arms a little bit, they tap out. If the person does it right, it doesn't even hurt the neck. You just feel like gradually you start losing out. If you're very lightheaded, and before you know it, you're in the twilight zone. Within a year, martial artists start coming from all over L.A. just to fight this guy. Taekwondo, Kung Fu, Karate. Horion chokes them all out. And because I didn't have to beat anybody to a pope, the guys would say, well, this is great. Can I learn? I said, sure, sign up. Soon enough, Horion opens a real studio. And word gets around. The Gracies had a standing challenge for $100,000. They would fight you. No holes barred. No rules. And whoever wins, it's $100,000. Never mind that Horion Gracie might not have $100,000. He's too good. Art realizes this dream he's been carrying around, this guy can make it happen. So Art starts calling. He needs to meet Horion. They set up a time at the brand new Gracie Academy. It was all painted in, uh, you know, in doctor office colors, but up, upscale and bright. So here comes Art, neat hair, suit, tie, and Horion, he's a little skeptical. Art, he was like, see, what's the name of the guy? Joe Pesci's on Lethal Weapon, you know? But Art wears him down. He comes in all the time for months. He helps Horion market a videotape promoting the family called Gracie's in Action, it makes a bunch of money, and Horion realizes this guy is pretty good at business. He can help bring my family to that big audience. Art, you and I are going to work together in this project, so we partner up. I said, we're going to do a tournament. Single elimination. The world of karate against the world of kung fu, against the world of jiu-jitsu, against the world of judo. That was the concept. This would be the tournament to end all tournaments. A prize fight to decide which discipline is the best. They'll call it War of the Worlds. A street fight to see who could beat up anybody. No holds barred. And he said, Hold on, maybe the only way to go about this, if you want to reach the masses, you got to go to television. And then I said, well, let's go to television then, you know. So Art starts cold calling TV people. Lou DeBella at HBO said, what else you got? 
I said, well, this is it. He said, well, call me back when you have something in the marital arts as opposed to the martial arts. Showtime, they're also a no. ESPN, not interested. The networks, yeah, don't bother calling the networks. They get all the way down the list to a new company called Semaphore. They're an upstart. They put music and comedy on TV, and they're eager to take risks. Hmm, interesting. So I call them up, and I get Campbell McLaren on the phone. And this was Art's pitch. Eh, Campbell, 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 uh, Campbell, Campbell. Uh, Showtime turned me down. HBO turned me down. NBC turned me down. Everybody turned me down. You're my last hope. And I go, you know, that's the worst pitch I've ever heard. Tell me more. They keep talking. Art gives the pitch. You know. The great white shark, the apex predator. And he starts winning Campbell over. Art had a great sort of enthusiasm that you couldn't help but catch. That a little bit P.T. Barnum and a little bit Huckster and a little bit used car salesman, but he really was genuinely excited about it. So Art comes to New York, and this is it. The only shot to get on TV. It's not going to be easy. Here's Campbell's boss, Bob Myrowitz. Art and Horian's business plan wasn't a good, it wasn't a professional business plan. Art walks into this fancy midtown New York office, and he knows... I have to win these people over, or else no TV, no tournament. And all he's armed with is a VHS tape, Gracie's in action. Well, I showed the video. It is a fact that most street fights will end on the ground. Here is an example that by knowing jiu-jitsu, you can subdue the opponent without having to hurt him. Horion does not sound that enthusiastic in this video, but the moves on the tape, they are captivating. David Isaacs was an executive at Semaphore, and he saw that first presentation. You hear Horian's voiceover, and then my brother's going to teach this guy a lesson. Um, and then this little guy, you know, beats the crap out of this much bigger guy. As the opponent turns his back, it's time for the choke. Their mouths open. They're pointing. They're elbowing each other. Look at this. Look at this. And then we looked around. I, I remember I looked around in the office. It was filled with people. I mean, it was captivating. It was visceral. It was unbelievable. And Bob's office is on the corner. He's got a corner office. And you walk into Bob's office, and he's got Cable Ace Awards on his credenza. He's got a golf putter there. And Bob's wearing a $1,000 suit, a $200 tie, and a, and a $200 silk shirt. After that meeting, they had a deal. From there, everything starts coming together. They managed to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars from Horion students. Semaphore helps them pick a new name because War of the Worlds is too science fiction-y. Now it's going to be called Ultimate Fighting Championship because nothing is bigger than Ultimate. They decide to hold it in Denver, Colorado. One reason, Colorado doesn't have a boxing commission, so fewer legal hurdles. And they can rent the local NBA arena for cheap. There was one more thing they needed to pull it all together fighters. I remember uh, going to some of the most famous martial artists I could re get to. D Dennis Alexio, who was in the movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme, kickboxer. Uh, and he said to me, you're doing what? That's a joke. He says, he hung up on me. So we go to number two, number three, number four. We keep going down the ladder. The invitation was there to everyone. So Joe Pesci and Brazilian Tom Selleck set out to find the toughest guys on earth. At first, martial arts people were skeptical. Boxing people were even more skeptical. He said, you want to get a ranked 
heavyweight boxer to fight one of these boys in karate pajamas? I said, yes, sir. You're chasing dreams. He said, you, he said you, 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 you're in a lot of trouble. He said, you ain't going to find nobody in this business that's going to let you do that. He said, but thanks for the call. All around the world, from Bangkok and Tokyo to Amsterdam, I sent everybody a letter. Hello, come on, we're having this thing. Join the party. And they start getting results. A martial artist in Holland has this tip. He said he provides the muscle on the street for the guys who run the raves, the brothels. He said he's been over and fought in Japan and in Bangkok. He said he's considered one of the toughest guys in Holland, bar none. His name is Gerard Gordeau. To want to fight in America in a cage without rules. And I say, okay, why not? I'm in good shape. It is my uh, profession to, to fight. And they say, okay, when you have to fight, you have to fight. Gordeau is in. Kevin Rozier calls me up reading one of my ads in the magazine, and Kevin had held three different kickboxing titles. Sent me a picture of himself weighing 245. I said, Kevin, you still weigh 245? He said, yeah, well, maybe I'm going to be about 265. Turns out Kevin Rozier is actually 325 pounds. He said, I've never not been able to knock somebody out with Marianne. He called it Marianne, his big right hand. So Rozier's in. Then Art calls up a guy who knows a lot about sumo in Japan. And that guy, he has a tip about a Hawaiian wrestler living in Japan named Taylor Tuli. He's a real thorny problem. He said, I got kicked out of sumo. I said, how high did he get in sumo? He said, Makoshida. I said, that's right below the top level. He said, yeah, the guy's good. He said, he's 6'2", weighs about 420. He said, he actually pushed a Japanese reporter into a plate glass window, and the glass broke, and he said it was an accident, and he's no longer fighting professionally in Japan. I said, I like this guy already. <laughs> I don't know, it sounds like Art Davies trying to pump it up. <laughs> That's Taylor. And he says, actually, he knocked a journalist over, but not through a window or a table. Whatever happened, he's in. Then, a tip about another American in Japan. He's a shoot fighter, which is a kind of hybrid of lots of styles. The fighter's name is Ken Shamrock. I said, stop right there. I said, I'm loving that name. I said, give me some information on him. I did some research, and I'm looking at a guy who's six feet tall, good-looking with a strong jaw, in a red Speedo? Unbelievable. I'm loving this guy. I mean, I was the best in the world. When this this thing, the UFC, it was almost like, well, who can beat me? Next, Art and Horion get a call about Zane Frazier. Zane's a karate champ. And also, he's been a bodyguard for people like Stevie Wonder. Recently, he's been working as a bouncer at a notorious L.A. nightclub. Just a really rough place. And so we would always have fights and knife fights and gun fights and street fights. So Art decides to meet this guy at a karate show. And when he arrives, it's chaos. According to Zane, he got into a fight with famous American ninja Frank Dukes. And I, I really took it to Frank Dukes and you know really beat the snot out of him. LAPD came and put us both in the handcuffs. And then Art Davey came up to me and said, are you Zane Frazier? Well, I was in handcuffs. And I said, yeah. Accounts from the Times say it was security guards, not police. But Zane is in. They recruit a local fighter in Denver named Pat Smith. And finally, they get a boxer, Art Jimerson, a ranked cruiserweight. It's like unfair, you know, I'm going to kill these guys, you know. So to recap, 
We have a Dutch tough guy, an overweight kickboxer, another kickboxer from Denver, a rogue sumo wrestler, a guy who looks like Captain America, Stevie Wonder's bodyguard, and a ranked cruiserweight boxer. That's seven. Only one left. Who was going to fight for the Gracies? Horion was helping to organize, so it couldn't be him. Art assumed it would be Hickson, the family champion. He's undefeated. Hickson was on another planet. He was a jaguar. He looked like a cross between Antonio Banderas and Marlon Brando and Mike Tyson. He walked into a room, everybody would stop talking. But Horion did not choose Hickson. Instead, he went with one of his smallest brothers, Hoyce. I said, Hoyce? I don't think he has a driver's license. He lives in a room above the garage at your house. His roommates are two piranha in a six-sided ha- a fish tank. My piranhas were very fun during feeding time. That's Hoist, by the way. Hoist loved going to the beach every Saturday, flirting with the girls. He just didn't fit the profile of a serious fighter. Life is good in my world. <laughs> Art had a lot of reservations. I said, he's 27 going on 17. He said, yeah, and? I said, why are we doing Hoist? Putting Hoist in there, you know, dressed in white like a little angel, it's almost like people feel sorry for him. If I'm trying to prove a point that jiu-jitsu is for anyone, if jiu-jitsu, the little guy can do wonders with jiu-jitsu, Hoist is the right example. And Hoist? Yeah, he seems like a slacker. But nobody's ever taken him seriously. I had to prove my, to my family that I was a fighter. Because I want to do it, but there's always a brother. There's so many brothers and cousins. Everybody's always so good. That's what I've been trying to prove to my family. That I can do it. That I can fight. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. (laughs) I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. The week of the tournament, we're in Denver. Everybody's arriving. Art, Horion, the TV guys, the fighters, and nobody knows what's going to happen. They need to get two things in place. One, they need to set up the ring or cage or whatever it is they're fighting in. And two, they need to bring all the fighters together, a group of random tough guys from around the world, to explain to them how it's all going to go down. Okay, the first thing. There had been a lot of debate about what the ring or the cage or whatever it is should look like. It can't be a boxing ring, a traditional boxing ring. I've been in enough fights and I've seen enough fights If the guys are getting beat up, it's very easy for him to slip between the ropes and get out. They needed something different, something that said this is not a traditional martial arts thing. Some really bad ideas were thrown out. One was a giant circular mat with a copper ring at the outermost portion, which would be electrified. 
Horian was talking about a moat. A moat? What are you doing with a fucking moat? And I kept saying, he, well, we don't have to put alligators in. Ha, 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 ha. Brazilian humor. Nothing was clicking. Eventually, they settle on an idea borrowed from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Actually, one of Horian's students had directed it. Conan the Barbarian. Conan had fought in a stone octagon in those movies. And I thought the octagon was a very cool shape. Like some shapes are not cool. A hexagon is not cool. Jason Cousin was the man who created the octagon. He realized a stone octagon, that wasn't going to work for TV. So he tried plexiglass and some other materials. And one day I was just walking down the street and ran my finger along a fence. And I had thought about chain link fence, but of course they didn't want the guys to rip their skin off. And I came across this vinyl-coated chain-link fence, and I said, well, this was some padding, and, you know, we put that on the octagon, and we've pretty much got something that'll contain them. So Jason and his team don't have much time to put together the octagon. The day before the fight, they're in the arena, setting everything up, all chain-link and padding and metal. And when you look at the octagon in UFC 1, it is, it's literally like gaffing taped and zip-tied together in the padding. But Art says, no, actually, it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Now, the second thing. It's time for the fighters to see each other in person. This has never happened before, so they need to have a meeting to go over the rules. But UFC supposedly has no rules, so it promises to be a pretty short meeting. Still, there's tension in the air. It's eight fighters in a tiny hotel conference room, together for the first time. Here's Kathy Kidd. She worked on logistics for UFC 1. It was like a classroom style um, set up with a whole bunch of overgrown kids, adults squeezed into these little chairs that were mostly too small for most of them. They were kind of close together after we've been keeping them apart for so long. Now they're all crammed in this one little room all next to each other. So something was bound to happen. Horion and Art and Campbell are sitting up at the front. And Horion stands up. He's the commissioner of the first UFC. Then Horion Gorsi says, okay, we're going to talk about the rules. And I says, and I raised my hand, I says, I got a t-shirt that you gave me that says there are no rules. So why are we talking about rules? I said, no, you can go ahead and do anything you want. Headbutts, elbow hits, anything you want to do, you can do. The only two restrictions we had, no biting and no eye gouging. Everybody agrees on those. Oh, and one more thing. Fighters cannot tape their knuckles. It had to be bare knuckle fight. You could put a tape on your wrist, but you couldn't tape the knuckles. Because that made the, the hand more of an armored weapon. What is going on here? Because you're changing rules, flip-flopping, 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 back and forth. I thought this was Noel's bard. I thought this anything goes. My knuckles have to be wrapped so I won't break my knuckles, right? And that's when Hoyan said, no, you can't wrap your hand knuckles. I said, what? Yeah, I'm sitting there and for one half hour and they talk. What do you have to talk if there are no rules? No rules are no rules. They kept talking and talking and then Horion brings up another rule. If you're planning to kick someone, you cannot wear shoes. Well, because you don't want people kicking with shoes. You know, there was an element in there. If you have shoes on, then it's an advantage you can kick someone with shoes. That was the idea. Can we wear the shoes? No, if you're going to kick, you can't wear the shoes. But you said if this is like a real fight, you can't go home and get your hands taped in the real fight, you might be wearing shoes. Yes, I did say that. 
they took away my shoes because they knew that if they could take away my balance, that Hoist would have a better chance of beating me. At one point, Hickson Gracie stands up. And when Hickson stands up, he's the kind of guy, when he stands up, people are saying, is there going to be a fight? And it says, if you want to set us up to fight and to lose, hey, why don't the UFC can start right here, right now? I'll take your punk ass brother on right now. These guys are there to fight, and if we have to fight before that, we'll just do it. <laughs> I mean, come on, I have a little fight background myself. I, I've lost control of this, and I'm trying to figure a way. What could I? What dramatic thing could I do at this point? Do I start yelling? Do I? Do I feign an attack? Maybe I could stop this meeting right here. I could grab my chest and dramatically fall to the ground. Suddenly, that would stop the meeting. This whole time, one fighter has been weirdly quiet. It's the sumo wrestler, Taylor Tooley. I didn't really say too much. I just observed everybody. I just signed the paper, and we left it on the table, and we started walking out. Mr. Gracie, he said, you know, he yelled at me. He said, hey, Tooley, where you going? And I said, I'm out of here. And then he said, well, what about the contract? You know, what about the, the, the signature? And I said, it's on the table. You sign it? I said, yeah. And then the whole room went quiet. And I just turned to all the other fighters and I said, hey, man, I came here to party. If any of you came here to party, I'll see you in the arena tomorrow. And then I just walked out. After that, everybody got quiet. And then they signed the papers. Art, Horion, and Campbell, they all agree Taylor Tooley saved the UFC. It's the next day, November 12th, 1993. All of the fighters are backstage. Art Jimerson, the boxer, is punching a heavy bag. Ken Shamrock is limbering up. Gerard Gordeau is smoking a cigarette and making terrifying eye contact. And one fighter looks surprisingly confident. The smallest guy in the tournament, Hoist Gracie. He's totally unflappable. And despite his size, he's telling people, you know, I'm going to win this thing tonight. Things are normal backstage, but the TV team, they're becoming worried. They've tested the octagon, just not for the sumo wrestler. So if he hits the side of the cage, nobody's totally sure if it's going to hold up. And the on-air team, they aren't ready. At the last minute, a kickboxer named Bill Superfoot Wallace was chosen to do play-by-play. And he was a bit dishonest about his credentials. Here's Mark Lucas. He directed the show. My only question was, Bill, have you done TV? Tons of TV. Are you okay with an IFB? And I should have known right then by the pause. Probably not. He said, uh, IFB? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay. An IFB is an earpiece that lets a producer talk directly to someone while they're on the air. So I noticed, too, just before we got on the air, every time he hears me in the IFB, he stops everything he's doing. In fact, once, his eyes kind of drift up to the ceiling, and I go, Bill? Bill? Yeah, Mark. I go, why are you looking at the ceiling? He goes, uh, no, I'm just you know listening to you. You can't listen while not looking at the camera. Got it. So show starts. All right, Bill, five, four, three, boom. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're about to see something that you have never seen before, the ultimate fighting challenge. Championship, Bill. Hello, I'm Bill Wallace, and welcome to McNichols, excuse me, at McNichols Arena. He burps and goes, excuse me, and starts, keeps talking. And that was the beginning of the show. Probably the worst sports broadcast in history. And I think it's awful to be the second worst or the third worst. If you're going to be bad, you need to stink. 
So the TV broadcast is live on air, and it's a giant mess. But it's finally happening. The tournament is real. Single elimination, bracket style. The first fight is between the sumo, Taylor Tuli, and the Dutch guy, Gerard Gordeaux. Or, as Bill Superfoot Wallace calls them, The first match will be Gerard Gordeaux against Taylor Tuli. But we were behind the curtains, and then the, the rock music started, and then the smoke machine started, and it just blew us away. We was like, oh no. And I just seen the whole crowd, there was a man, there was a different spirit, there was jacked up. 15 pounds, the 1992 world champion, French savant boxer, holder of the European French savant boxing champion title, for three years in a row, Gerard Gordeaux! I think Gerard Gordeaux's real job, I think he was an assassin because he was about the scariest person I'd ever met in my life. He was just so intense. Gordeaux comes out, and he does something more than just intense. You know, got into the octagon and did this kind of Hail Hitler salute to the audience. It was very weird. He's saluting in, a, in, in the style of French savat. You salute the four corners of the fighting arena. They thought there was a neo-fascist or a neo-Nazi aspect to it. If, if you think that, you are stupid. Uh, my grandparents are also Jewish. That's the reason for the salute is also bullshit, because I'm Jewish too. So Gordeaux and Thule are on the canvas. Gerard is shirtless with white drawstring pants. He looks totally calm. Thule is wearing a colorful sarong. He gives the crowd the devil horns, and he's ready to go. We're getting ready. The referee's in the center. And they go. Thule immediately tries to get up close to Gordeaux. No, I wanted him to come in closer because I had very good boxing. He charges, and Gordeaux ducks him like a matador. I lost my footing. Then Gordeaux pounces. I, I kicked him one time, I gave him one punch, and it was over. Kathy, what do you think? Uh, Let's go low. Uh, Gordeaux's kick was brutal. He knocked out a pair of Thule's teeth, which go flying into the front row. And his punch, it left this big gash above Thule's right eye. The fight was 26 seconds long. My world flipped upside down from that kick. Well, that was the hardest hit I ever took right there. And then that's why I'm happy that my brother threw the towel and the, the riff stopped the fight. Gordeaux was not doing much better. You look on the video. You can see after the punch, I ripped off. Wiped wipe off my hand to my trousers. Gerard thought there was something on his hand, but there was nothing on his hand. His hand was broken. And that's not all. Some of the pieces of his teeth sitting in my feet, and I broke my uh, little bone in, in my feet. The audience is totally shocked, including Kathy Kidd. Blood splattering out, the head flying to the side. And then it was almost like, was that a tooth? You don't want to believe that someone's tooth was actually kicked out of their mouth. Back in New York, Bob Myrowitz is watching on TV, and he is horrified. I thought we would get to see the beauty of karate. We would get to see the beauty of 
the different art forms. And instead, I see this terribly violent thing going on. Now, the TV crew is scrambling. How much time do we have to fill? And they're going, just fill as much as you can. I go, 26-second fight. I can't, you know, make a a one-and-a-half-hour feature film of it. It's like we're sad here. They had to get creative with the 26 seconds of footage they had, so they had to just keep replaying the whole fight. Bam, that's a right leg roundhouse kick right to the face. That's where the tooth came out. And he still stands there were some silver linings. For one thing, the octagon did not collapse. Here's Jason. At the crew, we decided that we were going to call that the moment of tooth as far as the octagon was concerned. And even though Kathy and Bob are disgusted and the TV crew is running around, Horion and Art, they're fine. It was hyperviolent, but that's the point. The world didn't know what to expect. That was the thing. And then they see people getting kicked on the face and, oh my God, what is this? You know, there was that shock effect. That was the shot that was heard around the world. You know, I'm accustomed to that. I'm seeing that before, and I know what's, what to expect. So I had the, the impact that I want to have. Holy shit, this isn't wrestling. This isn't fake wrestling. This is real. Did you see what happened to that guy's teeth? In the octagon, Horion's nephews are trying to clean blood off the canvas. But there's a thick stain. It has to stay there for the next fight. The debut of Zane Frazier, who was once Stevie Wonder's bodyguard. His opponent is the heavy kickboxer Kevin Rozier. I don't think Spanx had been invented, but he was wearing like these white bicycle Spanx pants to try to hold back this enormous belly. By contrast, Zane is cut, and Art says he has that champion look. He's tall and mean. But there's one thing working against Zane. He has asthma. In Denver, of course, it's the Mile High City, a place with very thin air. And by accident, Campbell McLaren made it a lot worse for Zane. I wanted a lot of drama, like a lot of fucking smoke. So he comes out through this smog, smog, through this, this artificial fog. It looks like it, it looked like San Francisco in there, right? It was not an effect. It looked like a layer of fog had come into McNichols Arena. So Zane comes out. He's sucking in artificial smoke. He's got asthma, and he's at 5,200 feet. So he hits the octagon, and he's like... (gasps) Zane gets in the ring, and his wife, Jolie, she's in the corner. So when you hear that cage close, clink, clink, there was no escape. And I remember her saying, I remember my wife saying, holy shit, this is for real. Close to anybody when it's time to fight. Not when they're that big. And they starting. Here we go. He starts attacking Kevin. And he beats the crap out of Kevin, but Kevin was big and roly-poly. That was a clear point shot, and the referee doesn't seem to notice. He's beating through his mouth, and here's his big, big silly Kevin, big awkward Kevin, still coming at him, throwing looping punches. Now right here is when I start to realize, okay, something's wrong because I can't catch my breath. This is going to take a lot of energy because if you can see, it's only been maybe a minute or so into the match, and they're breathing a little bit. Yeah. But now my, I'm starting to wheeze. Here I'm starting to wheeze, and I'm thinking, okay, what, what's going on? And finally, Zane just kind of runs out of gas, runs out of oxygen, and kind of collapses, and Kevin Rozier stomps him. Fatigue got him, baby. I think fatigue got to him. He went too hard, too soon, too often. Zane is bleeding from a cut right above his eye. He's gasping for air. His hands are up trying to fend off Rozier's kicks. 
It's at this point Jolie throws in the towel. I can actually say my wife, Jolie uh, Frazier, she saved my life that day because I'd be dead if she didn't throw in the towel. And then we're in the hospital room. And they had to intubate me at the hospital. That was the only way they saved my life. Their ambulance got me in the hospital nick of time. But, I mean, it was, it was serious. Kathy Kidd is in charge of fighter safety, and things backstage are getting out of hand. Three ambulances at the arena in Denver that first night had them lined up, ready to go. Didn't know if I would use them all, but I thought three three should be enough. After the first two fights, she's already sent two people to the hospital with serious injuries. I truly thought every single fighter is going to need an ambulance. She calls the ambulance company for backup. They're telling me, well, it's going to take some time. You know, we'll get them there as soon as we can. And I'm like, no, no, I I don't have any time. We have fights. You've got to get the ambulance here. They're like, well, ma'am, we'll get them there as fast as we can. Back in the octagon, Hoist Gracie is about to make his debut. His opponent is the boxer, Art Jimerson, who confusingly decides to only wear one glove. So, you know, he can grapple with the other hand. I'm the first one out there, right? I look up, here comes Hoist with like, like a chain of his brothers and coaches all, their hands on the back of each other's shoulders, like the Jacksons, right? I'm like, oh, man. I would have to say that uh, Hoist certainly looks the most confident of everyone has come in so far. Once the fight starts, it becomes the Hoist Gracie show. He gives a few tentative kicks, and then he darts in and knocks Jimerson over. He shot up and came down and got my legs. When he got my legs... He sweeped me under, and I'm like, wow, you know, so I'm thinking to myself, all right, referee, I'm down on the ground. Within seconds, he's climbed on top. On TV, it looks like Hoist is giving the boxer this tight bear hug. But what's actually happening, he's trying to get his forearm over Jimerson's trachea. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to escape. He doesn't know how, what to do. I'll take him to the ground, and he's doesn't totally hopeless. All his boxing training is hopeless. Art is a little bit worried here. There it is. There's there Art. And he's on the ground. Now we're watching Hoist take the mount position. And that's exactly where the jiu-jitsu man wants to be. He's on top. When I'm on the ground, rolling around with him, I'm thinking, you know, why ain't this referee breaking us up, right? So I tell the referee, you know, can we get broken up? And the referee said, keep fighting. And then Hoist headbutts me like four times. He just bowed out. He just tapped out. He just tapped out. Did he? Oh, the towel just got thrown in as well. That's amazing. It doesn't take much. It is just a frightening experience, Bill, to have somebody up on top of you. Uh, to be able to put pressure on you quickly. You bet. It happens no, that quickly. I don't think I was hurt at all. I think he was just frustrated. You can't breathe. You can't breathe. The boxer gives up. He never had a chance to throw a punch. But the Gracie family, they're ecstatic. There are more fights. Ken Shamrock, Captain America, he beats the local Denver fighter, Pat Smith. The crowd helps Ken with garbage because, you know, he beat the local guy. And now... We're in the semifinals. Four people left. Gerard Gordeau, the Dutch fighter, even with a broken hand, he makes quick work of the heavy kickboxer Kevin Rozier. In the other bracket, Hoyce is fighting Captain America himself, Ken Shamrock. I'm walking in there and I'm going to tear him apart. As soon as I looked at him, man, I just looked at him like I'm going to kill you. You notice the referee is kind of keeping them far away from each other. I think it's very intelligent. <laughs> Premature fighting. <laughs> yes, yeah. very likely event here. I think this will be a very exciting bout. Here they go. 
Look at that. They're going at it. Hoist trips up Ken and he gets on top. Ken starts trying to pry himself loose, but he just can't pull himself out. As I'm trying to push his feet away, I can't get that grip. Now with shoes on, I can get it. So now we end up on the bottom, and this is where he's good at on top. And now Hoist has him in what appears to be the guard position. Hoist takes the mount. That's exactly where Hoist wants to be. Now what Hoist is probably going to try to do is get his right leg, his left leg over Ken's. Hoist starts positioning Ken for the chokehold. We see Hoist in his white jujitsu gi, flat on top of Ken, who is wriggling underneath, just trying to get loose. Hoist wraps his arms around Ken's neck. My father used to choke all his opponents. That was his favorite move. Because if you break somebody's arm, they can continue fighting. If you choke them out unconscious, the fight is over. So now we end up flat again, and now he's got the gi wrapped around my throat, and he's choking me. He'll reach underneath and grab the sleeve of his gi, and he pulls it across my throat. So instead of an arm where I'm trying to break it, it's a rope going across my neck, and I can't get my fingers on it. There's the tap. There's the tap. Hoist actually had him in a choke from the back, and he tapped. He tapped four times. Bill, that was a that was a tap. I did not see the tap. I saw it four times. And it's just like the the arrogance that I had in this going into this fight. That's something that I, I learned from from this. I never let that happen again. I'll be a little more prepared for it next time, you know. Hopefully I can I give him a better fight, you know. I'm sorry that, uh, that I didn't give him a good enough fight, you know. Ken says this fight, it stayed with him his entire life. And he maintains if he'd been allowed to wear shoes, the whole thing could have turned out differently. To think that they had changed and done so many things to try to stack the card when they didn't have to. Just my opinion, they cheated. <laughs> Come on, Ken, give me a break. Don't joke about that, man. You're a tough guy no matter what. It just happens that, you know, Hoist knew a couple of more tricks than you did. But Hoist used a very basic, you know, ABC of jiu-jitsu. The finals are Hoist versus Gerard Gordeau, the Dutch tough guy. When Hoist steps into the ring, he looks pretty much unscathed. He hasn't taken a punch. But Gerard, his hand is swelling, he's bleeding from his foot, he looks beat up. And you cannot make a choice, oh, I stop. We are fighters, we have to win. And I make a trip for 5,000 kilometers to go there and I say stop. No, not in my heart. The winner walks away with $50,000. And he gets to say he is the toughest fighter in the world. It's an exciting match on paper, but Hoist gets him on the ground right away. He's going to his back. There's that left hand of Hoist is underneath Gerard's neck. And he's... Well, Gerard has these, his chin down. These braces are anacondas. It's over. That was just... Hoist is not letting him go. He wants to make sure the referee sees that this is over. But... That's a... That is the power of, of jiu-jitsu in action. Simply incredible. These folks are going wild. You can see, look at the expression on Hoist's face. There's a look now of satisfaction. I did it. I did it. And he deserves that, that moment. They hoist him up. He deserves it. Remember, all before this, he's got everyone watching him to perform. He can't let the family down. I'm not here for the money. I'm here for the honor of the family, for the name that the family's been putting up for the last 65 years. Here he is, the ultimate fighting champion, 
validated in front of his entire family. But in this moment, he's still hoist. What are you going to do with the money? I'm going to go to Disneyland. You go to Disneyland? <laughs> There's a promo for him. Okay. Disneyland is fun because you become a kid again. A special day for your dad and your whole family. Yes. Congratulations on the fifty thousand dollars and being the ultimate fighting champion. With that, let's go to Bill. Despite the rocky start, the TV broadcast well, it runs nearly two hours. It was long enough. The octagon did not collapse, and nobody died. It's a qualified success. But was it a good show? The first UFC was super violent. Half of the fighters went to the hospital, and the canvas was covered in blood. Art says the hyper-violence, that was the whole point. But other people are having a much harder time with it, like Bob Meyerowitz back in New York and Kathy Kidd, who was working backstage. I've had a man's tooth go flying over my head. I put people in ambulances. What am I doing? And honest to God, I threw up. I'm in the bathroom. I threw up. I'm sick. I'm, I'm questioning myself. One of my uh, team members came in and said, what's wrong? I said, oh, my gosh, these people beat the crap out of each other. She's like, oh, come on. Everybody's in the bar. I'm like, what? She goes, Kathy, they're in the bar. They're drinking. They're having fun. You have to see this. You won't believe it. She walks down to the bar and opens the door. Most of the fighters are discharged from the hospital, and they came back. And there they are. They're laughing, they're talking, they're together. It was, it was amazing to see that. Now, being involved in the first UFC, I feel lucky. And even through all the things that we talked about, in the shoes and all the stuff that happened, I still feel lucky to be a part of it. Yeah, we are sportsmen. After the fight, you are sportsmen and, and uh, normal human beings. There's a sense of respect for each other. The guy who won, won. The guy who lost, lost. And just life goes on. You know, that thing bonded us. You've gone to where nobody has gone before, and you will do it again. And everyone who follows you will remember that you were the pioneer, and you'll show your, your kids and your grandkids what you did, and you'll be proud of it, because what you did, nobody else had the courage to do. And Campbell and I bumped into each other finally, Campbell McLaren, and Campbell was already half drunk on single malt scotch. I had a cigar in my hand. I said, what do you think? He said, this is going to be fucking huge. If they picked up 50,000 people on pay-per-view, that would be considered a big hit, totally beyond expectations. Turns out, they did 86,000. Everybody was startled. Suddenly now, people are calling me. Hey, we saw that thing. We, we, I said, oh, didn't I call you three months ago? You, I, maybe. Semaphore and Bob Meyerowitz are all in. The fighters start getting recognized. The biggest winners of all are the Gracies. Suddenly, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is on the map. Here's Dave Meltzer, a writer who's been covering the UFC since the beginning. It changed the whole martial arts world, the first you know, UFC and the first couple of UFCs because of this. And you used to have every corner would have the karate studio. And it really switched because people wanted to study jiu-jitsu. The UFC becomes a pop culture phenomenon. And as it takes off, there's a backlash. The New York Times publishes an article with the headline, Death is Cheap, Maybe Just $14.95. That's the cost of the UFC on pay-per-view. John McCain, senator from Arizona, tries to get it banned in all 50 states. And the sports press does not take it seriously. 
it becomes harder to book shows, and Art realizes this isn't going to last much longer. I don't think the New York Times is going away. I don't think John McCain is going away. I said I wouldn't be surprised if uh, at some point Bill Clinton comes out against this. I mean, it's possible. They try to make the UFC more mainstream to appease the boxing commissions and the politicians by adding rules and weight classes and time limits and judges. Horion hates this new direction. He wants the UFC to be raw and real. So Art and Horion make a really tough call. They agree to sell their half of the company to Bob Myrowitz. The sum was never disclosed, but Art did tell a reporter, I had a million reasons to sell. Art actually stayed with the company as an employee, but he was fired for secretly trying to start another league. Bob held on to the UFC for a couple of years, but he was losing money, millions of dollars, and he was spending a lot of time in court. So then he sold the UFC in 2001 for a bargain price, $2 million, to a group led by millionaire investors the Fertitta brothers and their friend Dana White. The sport would never be the same. The Fertittas sunk in about 40 or $50 million. They got it approved across North America, and the UFC became profitable and really popular. Today, Dana White is the face of MMA. Most fans assume he started the whole thing. There's an MMA style now. It's not jiu-jitsu versus sumo versus boxing. Here's Dave Meltzer. The fights that you watched in UFC 1, as compared to what MMA has, has turned into today, it's so far. I mean, it's probably like watching, you know, a basketball game in the 1920s and watching, you know, an NBA game today. The first tournament, it's totally different from the fights today. It just feels like guys doing a street fight. Now... Horion is still running Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. He built a new headquarters and a Gracie museum in Los Angeles. Campbell McLaren started his own league, Combat Americas. It's focused on Latino fighters. Of all the original organizers, Bob Myrowitz is the only one in the UFC Hall of Fame. As for Art, he got married to Kathy Kidd. I pursued him. I chased him. And then finally he let me catch him. It lasted a year, but they're still friends. Art tried a lot of things after the UFC. He worked for a kickboxing league, but that job didn't last. I originally had the idea for a video dating business that was connected through the internet, but it was too soon. I developed a show called Magic, Making a Great Inner City for Magic Johnson. It was The Apprentice Goes to the Ghetto. None of Art's other big ideas were hits like the UFC. Because how could they be? I guess I never found that one horse. I never found that one woman either. As for the $4 billion, Art says, eh, I never could have made it a $4 billion company. I've got my health. I made some money selling it to Bob. Who cares? Art lives in a one-story house. It's away from the Las Vegas Strip and the new, sprawling UFC headquarters. He's got a cigar in his hand. The sun is setting on his backyard, which is this long, flat bit of desert. Sometimes he goes out there for walks, shoots at coyotes. He likes it out there. Art refuses to spend much time thinking about regret. I was driving down Sunset Boulevard one day, and I had a convert. I was driving a convertible at the time, and somebody from Sports Illustrated wanted to know what I thought if I ever saw a UFC billboard. I said there was one. I said at Sunset in La Brea. I said or wherever I was. What was it like? Did, what was your feelings at that moment? I said in a way it was like you know if you're a divorced father and somebody else is raising your kid, but they're doing a good job of it. You think. Eh, everything's okay. I said, the light changed. I drove on. I didn't think anything more about it. That's how I looked at it. 
Thanks for listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. ESPN Films senior producer Aaron Leiden is our series editor. This episode was created in partnership with Pineapple Street Media. This story was reported by Chris Berube and produced by Jess Hackle and 30 for 30's Andrew Mambo. It was edited by Joel Lovell. Taylor Barfield was the production assistant, archival research by Diane Hodson. The executive producers of Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Mixing for this episode by Ann Hepperman, original music by Chris Terry. The 30 for 30 podcast team also includes Kate McAuliffe, Vin DeAnton, Ryan Nantel, and producers Keith Romer and Julia Lowry-Henderson. Connor Schell and Libby Geist are executive producers for ESPN Films. Adam Newhouse is director of development. The ESPN Films team includes Deirdre Fenton, Jenna Anthony, Catherine Sankey, Jennifer Thorpe, and Colin Fleming. The ESPN audio team includes Trog Keller, Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannisini, and Ryan Granner. Special thanks to Brett Okamoto, Ryan Ross-Smith, Bill Superfoot-Wallace, Alan Kelman, Rich Goins, Buzz Reifman, Jason DeLeon, Avery Truffleman, Henry Malofsky, and the whole team at Pineapple Street Media. Thanks to ESPN's Ryan Hurley, Ray Dinahan, RJ Santillo, Rodney Belazer, Tony Chow, and Kate LaRue. Louise Argianis, Jason Helig, and Jennifer Thorpe did archival research, and Roger Jackson provided fact-checking. Our theme music was composed by Rishikesh Hirway of Song Exploder. We're posting lots of extras on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can sign up for the newsletter through our website, 30for30podcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to 30 for 30 Podcasts in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back next week with more 30 for 30.